Hello, I'm Scott Graham. I'm with Johnny Reardon, and this is the Frantic Assembly podcast. So, we have a special guest with us, which is great. Don't have to listen to you. I know. You don't have to listen to me. Yes. We're just going to hand over to our special guest. Um, and we're with writer Sally Abbott. Hello. 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 <laughs> it's nice here, isn't it? It is, and I get to be with people, not just on my own in my little shed. So that's lovely. well. That's why we got yeah. you. Out. Take yeah. us from a shed to a bunker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not know. really a podcast. It's more an intervention. Yeah, it is. That's it's, right. Yeah. Yeah. With no mobile phone signal. No, and no, maybe no. after this you might have a shower. And yeah. Yeah. Get some food and yeah, and you might give me my shoes back. You might give me my shoes back and and I can have my coat back and let's see and how it goes. My keys. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, writer, <laughs> uh, mostly in TV, uh, casualty. Uh, correct me. Uh, yeah. uh, the coroner. Yeah. Uh, Vera. Yeah. Those are three shows you've watched. And EastEnders. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Hey. Very good. Hey. Scott. Very good. <laughs> so the reason why we've invited you down to the uh, the bunker for this uh, podcast is. We are collaborating on a new show. We certainly are, yeah. Yeah, how yeah. the hell did that happen? Um, well, I think after the fourth week that I'd been staying outside your house, knocking at your window, yeah. you thought you maybe should talk to me. I think I brought you out some soup. You did, but um, I noticed it was with all the stuff that I'm allergic to, so I don't I think do you're my trying research. to kill me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it was really interesting, isn't it? Because... I, I have I did have a whole which is I've just been talking to um, colleagues in the office about which is I had a whole other career before I became a writer which was I worked in theatre for um, about eighteen years and in fact I think we worked out so obviously we met because my husband was in Fatherland when it came back to London to the lyric but we met uh, in the rehearsal room for Tiny Dynamite mm. which was in was that 1999, who was like doing national, she was the first female writer who was doing national work. Uh-huh. Which I know that might sound a bit, that was, a, and she was the same age as me, and that was a really, really big thing for me. And it was, and then I remember going to watch the show, and it was such a beautiful, beautiful, gentle, tender piece. And I think that's what I always remember about Frantic. Do you know what I remember from that what? preview the, in Manchester? Obviously, the first time we'd run the show, this is before we took it to Edinburgh. Um, in the show, it's just me, Stephen, and Jasmine Hyde, and uh, a lot of it is lounging around on a fake kind of big pontoon. circular, big circular thing. Yeah. Uh, it was a square thing, but you remember, yeah, I remember it, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember I had to take, I took my top off, so I'm standing there semi naked, and, and the audience is full of uh, school kids, and there was just this sound that came from them, which was. And I turned around and saw Stephen absolutely lose it. I think that was Stephen Hoggart's happiest moment was when that happened. And I went back to the audience, you could just see you could just see my heart break. So that was the preview and I thought, Jesus, I've got another six months of this. Did it did you get better reactions than that after it? I just blocked it out. Yeah, I thought I've got to be bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. You think Ricky Gervais took the piss out of Tony Dynamite, like, don't you? Oh, well, I don't know. But, do you know the, um, oh, what's, is, is, is it extras? extras? I think it's yeah. extras. I think it's extras, the one with um, Ian McKellen. Is that right? I think it is, yeah. He's rehearsing a play with Ian McKellen. He wants to uh, connect with proper yeah. work. Well, I remember watching it and just thinking, oh my God, that's Tiny Dynamite. That's Tiny Dynamite. There was a, this love triangle. Yeah. It was set on the pontoon. It was slightly ghostly as well. It's like Ricky Gervais had saw mm. Tiny Dynamite and gone, that's the one I want to rip the <sighs> out of. Which oh. I'm quite pleased about, really. I think that's, a, that's an honour, isn't it? It's also a good episode. Do you know what? Um, I've... I've got uh, somebody, it's the writer who's now, it wasn't at the time, he's now a very, very, very successful writer. And, uh, and I knew him through theatre. Do we need to prepare the bleeper for this? No, no I'm going to be careful. And it was, <laughs> and it was, I was doing, again, we might not use this story, but um, I was doing oh, um, let, let us be the judge of that. Yeah, I was doing some, a life training thing. So quite a few of my friends were doing this life training. And, and it was one thing where you kind of go, would you like to come along to the, to the talk or whatever? And you know, that's part of your thing is get people to go to the talk. And I asked me if you wanted to talk, I said, yeah, 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 I'd really love to go to the talk. And I thought, oh, I'm quite surprised about that. Anyway, it was, I realised why about a year later when it was on screen. And he basically <laughs> used everything that he'd got from that, as, but in a really weird way, it wasn't quite right. But I was like, that was it. That was why you did it. And that it, it is a really interesting thing about writers because certainly now I just write, we are vampires mm. of life, I think. <laughs> and I'm quite honest about it. I did a talk last week to my WI in my village because I live in a little village now. And I did a talk called How to Murder People, Asterix, um, uh, you know, return, 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 You're Asterix. Fictitiously, yeah. Okay. So it was fictitiously, but um, and I and I'd said to them all, you know, I do use life a lot. Like we've got a very, very busy, very political, very gobby, quite arsy at times Facebook page for our village, and I use loads of stuff off of that, oh. which is that's good for them to know that. Yeah. So, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it is. But you just vampire, and it is that really weird thing. I don't know if you have this, which is I have people who tell me awful things. And I have to stop myself going, brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. And it's like, you know, and I've been doing, it's like, you know, because you work with all kinds of different people. So I, I worked with a forensic psychiatrist last year, you know, and he's like telling me about like psychopaths and the awful things. And like, he could see my eyes lighting up. It's awful, it's weird. My anyway. friend, my friend um, is a director, but she was sat next to a writer at a press night. And just as the house lights were going down, the writer leant over to her and went, there's a lot of you in this. Enjoy. <laughs> and it was like, oh. it was that thing of that that friend in question took it as a compliment, and but it was quite harrowing stuff. That well, was I know someone who uh, they had a group of friends, one of which was a writer, and the writer wrote about that group dynamic, Ooh. and I'm not sure it fell apart. how that landed yeah. with the the group of friends. My initial response was, "Wow, that's really flattering." Yeah, you know, you must feel great. But he was like, "No, no." I think they felt rinsed. It's really tricky, isn't it? Because I, I, this is what I was saying at the, the thing I was at last week, which is that you have to use the magic if, which is, or the magic what if. So, but what if that happened? And what if that happened? So I take like a lot of stuff from my life and from my friends and family life, but I always uh, twist them and turn them because it's about 
because I don't, it's really difficult if you put people directly on. Although I did put my parents into casualty. And it was. Do you want to just rephrase that? Yeah. Or, or maybe yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Sorry. I, I did put my parents into BBC Casualty, the TV show. So what I did was, um, I got to write the last ever episode of Casualty that was set in Bristol, and they'd been in Bristol for like twenty five odd years. Um, in this like, kind of, it wasn't great conditions. It was like a warehouse with like, you know, like mobile thing stacked on mobile thing there was no windows it was anyway so they were moving to Cardiff to proper proper studios and I wrote the episode which set fire to the whole building to be able to then explain why it looks slightly different uh four weeks later <laughs> we're in the new studios in Rothlock anyway I thought oh I'll do a thing for my parents now my my dad had has had a tendency to not listen to my mum very much and to all the overriders, so I thought, I'll write a story about this in Casualty. I'll put them in the fire, only they haven't heard the alarms going off. <laughs> and she's, they've come back into the ward, and they'll just say, I really think we need to go, Bernard. And I actually gave them my parents' names, which was Bernard and Susan. So she's actually saying, Bernard, you never listen to me, Bernard. And he's going, Susan, just wait a minute. And he goes, right, okay, I'm ready. And he goes, ah, I haven't got my shoes on. So he's then getting his shoes on. And then because Bernard doesn't listen to Susan, um, they get caught in an explosion and Susan gets injured and that was but do you know what it's got my parents names it's got their mannerisms but they never took a single notice of the actual <laughs> why I did it um, but yeah it's but I do think people tend not to recognize I think it's, it's, a, it's a duty as a writer that you you have to change it it's got to be a bit of fiction because otherwise it's that it's not fair to just take somebody's life wholesale and Replicate it. That's just me, though. Is is that is that a theft? If you do it like that, do you think? If you were to take someone's life story and write it, I don't know whether you can do that. I though, don't. Can you can't really take their life story. You take elements. you take a situation, yeah. don't you? So you usually take a situation because quite often, you know, people you just kind of go. Oh, that God, that's really interesting. And then imagine if that happened. And quite often, what it's like a jigsaw because I think writing's like a jigsaw, mm-hmm. and it is literally like going, oh, hold on a minute, those pieces there make a little section of five, which go really well with this little section of eight that I've built over here. If that makes sense. But I heard, um, I read on Facebook yesterday. I'm in this writing group, and there's about five thousand members, and somebody had said that they're a writer, and every time they're with their friend who's also a writer and they tell a story, that this other writer goes, oh, I'll have that. Now, that's not on, but you know, when writers are together, we will always be, tell a story and then go, but I'm having that one. Because you always like make sure that's all clear, <laughs> you know. Um, that idea of taking inspiration from uh, experience, from real, real life, from the people around you, it's obviously very complex that's what you're articulating that's a complex relationship with your immediate environment and the responsibilities of being a a writer I mean that's something that we found on Fatherland yeah asking people their stories and then processing it into a a show it messed with my head yeah and it was a very very complicated thing and and the the end product the the show became as much about that and the fears and struggle to get through that as it was about the actual interviews themselves Um, but at least there is that argument at least it gets articulated at least you were talking about it out loud I think there's something 
even more problematic, as much as I love it, with something like street photography. Um, a guy I know who's a brilliant, brilliant photographer, yeah. had some time on his hands when he was on a job in America and just walked through LA taking photographs, then started posting them, because he hadn't done street photography for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And they were wonderful. Yeah. And I felt privileged to see these pictures, but everybody you saw looked slightly mad. Yeah. Manic. Wonderful and manic and crazy and absurd. I wasn't sure whether they were being celebrated or whether they're kind of being derided. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, but also it goes back to such a primitive argument of you take my picture, you're stealing my or so, you're stealing something yeah, from yeah, me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you can argue your way in and out of it. But what I what I'm really interested in is where we draw our ideas from. Because knowing in the short time that I've been yeah. working with you, that's very much been at the heart of the process. Yeah. Because for I think we're alone, um, I came to you with some thoughts and ideas yeah. which felt very personal to me yeah. and my uh, immediate relationships, and then I knew that they would be put through a you know through a mangle through yeah. a pasta yeah. maker and come out a different shape. Yeah. But what that has done has sparked a conversation between us, which you have then brought your world. Yeah. into so now you're dealing with those uh, very personal stories that emerge yeah. and I put them through the what if yeah whatever whatever however you articulate that and then and then they take life they become other characters well it, I tell you what I found really unless they remain Bernadette and Susan or whoever yeah, Bernadette, yeah, Bernadette yeah, yeah. Um, I tell you what I think is really interesting with um, I think we are alone which is the whole process which is um, I think from the very start, we've all been very open and honest with each other, it, you know, and especially like with Cathy, certainly there were things that came up. Cathy and me had things that had happened to us or that we'd ex had experienced. Can you talk about our so good mate, Cathy Burke, who is co-directing the show? Cathy co-directing the show, yeah. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Um, yeah the legend. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, but we, we, there were just so many crossover things happening and I'm just a bit of a believer in... Um, you listen to the to the universe when it is presenting stuff to you, you know, um, and and it was just and so there were kind of things going. Well, this is really really interesting. And then we had our we you know we did our workshop, didn't we, at the first week of June with a group of actors. And again, they were so open and generous um, with their stuff. So the stories that we've got that are in, I think, Crillone are are a mixture of so many different people's stories. I mean, uh, with, with almost all of them, there's something that's to do with truth, That's even if it has got really changed and switched. But there is a thing in there to do with truth. And, it's, um, and it was really interesting because I came into... Because I haven't worked in theatre for years, and it, it feels like it's my first proper theatre commission. And I remember, I think it was in the third or fourth meeting... And we've been talking about all these different characters and your stories and Pete's stories and Cass' stories and my stories and everything. And I remember because I had my TV head on of going, right, so which characters are we interested in and which characters do we want to follow? Because in TV, you're kind of, it is your voice, but you're, you're kind of not doing what the TV production company wants to do, but they're employing you to do it a certain way. And I was really shocked when I said, uh, so which characters are we interested in? None of you answered. And I went, oh, it's what I'm interested in. 
It was the characters that I was interested in because I because none of you said anything, and it was a really big shift for me that and going oh it's what I want to do in this. I think it's about offering something as food, yeah, for for the writer. Um, but that was so lovely from having to, and I loved writing TV, but then working in theatre and going, uh, it was it was like well we were in the workshop. Uh, the day it came out on Twitter that we were doing, I think we're alone, and obviously um, that Kathy was co-directing it with you, and it all went completely nuts. And I got all these, I put like thousands of notifications on my phone, and I said to Kerry, um, producer Kerry, I didn't think I'd get mentioned because I just, it was just such a, so, and it's it's very interesting, I think, where where the writer is in theatre um, as opposed to everything else that I've worked. I think I think that. You've picked up on something very interesting, which is the role of the writer, the position of the writer yeah. within the creative process within theatre making. I don't think there is one rule. There yeah. certainly isn't one rule. I think if you were working with Payne's Plough or the Royal Court, they might have a much more pure writer-led yeah. condition yeah. You know, yeah. where you would be invited to work yeah. on an idea or present yeah. an idea, uh, and then they might take it further. I, I think for financial reasons as much as any we're not in a position to do that yeah and and it's always felt very natural because we could never pay anybody to come and join us really early on that the ideas were uh, coming from the center coming from us and yeah. then we would engage a writer to help but and I, do you know what i have to say like i really love that because there's elements of that that are very like when you work in tv because like well certainly not not so much now because um i mean it's really weird like now i'm for do a lot of crime writing on TV, so like Vera and stuff. But on, say, on a show like Casualty, um, it is created very, very collaboratively together, and then you go in and you put your spin on it as writer and your voice. Um, but there's always a kernel of something that you're starting from. And it might be that as the writer, you pitched that kernel six weeks ago in a story conference, and now you're delivering on it. But that's, you know, I... I really love being collaborative. You know, my background is working in theatre as a as a participatory producer. So I'm always used to working with people and and it's and I really I just really love that because often that little group is your first audience as a writer. Yeah. And certainly um you know, we've got one story that is a, 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 that is that runs all the way through I think we are alone. And the first audience I tested it out on was that group of actors in June um, to see how they reacted to it. And that was, yeah, so that was really interesting. And, it, you know, it's really exciting as well with I Think We're Alone because there's one story in there which is, I don't think it's a spoiler to say it's a ghost story. Is that a spoiler? But then I would I would say the question remains around what a ghost story is. Yes, and oh, you tease. Yeah, I think, the, well, I the think there's more than one ghost story. There was a lot of ghost. Yeah, you're right. That. You're right. We have a yeah. lot of ghost stories. Yeah. There's but whether more. you whether you could put it in the shelf on the shelf that says ghost stories, I don't know yet. But that's what I find really interesting about it because it's it's about what haunts us, what we stay connected yeah. to, and what we crave yeah. and ache for when it's gone. Yeah. The scariest thing for me as a writer is when I don't know what the story is that I'm working on and I haven't worked it all out and I often think that it's a bit like 
the Marauder's Map in Harry Potter yeah. or the Pensieve in Harry Potter where you put Talking your head to the right in. Person. Yeah, and it's like that for me is like what. I mean, it was even like like on Casualty, I literally had a Marauder's Map of where everybody was I've and everything. I've got a clue what these nerds okay. are. You're such a liar. So, You're such a liar. So, you know um, all of this. I do not know. I've never seen a, I've never seen a Harry Potter film all the way through. Okay, so it's also... The better so, towards the end, aren't they? So, so the Marauder's yes, Map is a that, thing, which is where it's like a map of Hogwarts and that area, and you can see little tiny footprints for every single person who's there, so you can see where they are at any one time. So that's how it kind of... There are infinite possibilities. Yes. And what you want to do is you want to cut off loads of those paths until, you know, you can get to that path. You know, you still want it to be quite broad and then you'll make it go less. But that's what's really exciting, which is you're not being presented with everything. You, you've got a few things and it's like, uh, and that that's what makes it feel like much but it's been very interesting the whole process for us on this play because it's it, it's felt like almost like a very organic gentle process and then it like arrived I mean I know that obviously I rewrote like Madden did a lot of work in August but it was it felt like it always knew what it was going to be uh, yeah I think Do that's you know what I mean? yeah I think that's really um, I think you're right but it's also quite strange because I I remember being completely lost with it yeah. Before I engage you and Kathy. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because I, I didn't have anybody to say, well, it's not that, and it is that, yeah. and yeah. it won't be that. Yeah. It, I was just presenting really kind of personal thoughts. Yeah. And didn't know what to do with them, and uh, just needed someone to come in and make help make those judgments. Yeah. Um, I think so. In many ways, we did say as a group, what we're interested in yeah. and which characters we want, without even knowing there were characters, yeah, yeah, just yeah. which limbs, which paths yeah, yeah, are we going to yeah. follow. There's nothing scarier than the infinite space. Yeah. You know, you, you need those parameters to help you focus, of course. Um, but very quickly, through your initial treatments, your first sketch draft, what did you call it, Ace? Uh, the very first draft of anything I do is called a riot draft, which probably right, nobody sees. And you saw a working draft, which was the next draft on from the riot draft. Yeah. Because I would never show you the riot draft. Because <laughs> you'd be going, what have we done giving it to oh, her? It's written in crayon. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, she's she's put hearts over all her eyes in the script. <laughs> uh, no, but it was... Um, but, yeah, so I think that was a working... And that was Quentin because I wrote that script three times over between the end, between August, well, the start of August and second week of September. But each time it took five days to write it. And it was, and even the next draft took five days to write because it was, it was one of those really rare things where I just felt like I had to just, just step out of the way and allow myself to be a bit of a conduit, if you know what I mean. I think I do. Yeah. I mean, you have, you've certainly drawn from elements of your own life and your experience and, and friends, you know, there is a huge section which is from the experience that Cathy's yeah. had yeah. as well. But what I saw, and I'm interested to see whether this, this feels the same for you, what I saw were those elements come in and then start to re-emerge as themselves. Yeah, totally. You know, the characters totally. started to become different yeah. people. Um, 
I, I, I think getting some fantastic actors in the room and having yeah. that read-through we did really helped that, of course. It does challenge what you think. Um, but yeah, I, I think of them as very real people now. So you go into rehearsals in under three weeks. <laughs> yes. Uh, what's... For you and for both of you, I suppose, what's the continuing writing process going to be like when you get into the room? What's What do you think? What can you predict you think might happen? I, I, well, I mean, I haven't been through this before, really, but I'm presuming that what's going to happen is that that through hearing it, certainly through hearing it, I'm going to see it here a lot of words that don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. And generally, uh, with everything, is is I tend to cut because you realise oh, you don't need to say that again because it's actually really clear and actually you take away from that moment by adding that extra line so that's what I want to hear is of those moments um, and so I'm imagining that what I will be there to do is to help streamline stuff and that by seeing you and Kathy work on it that you just kind of go oh right hold on we don't need this or there's a better way to do that or because I certainly don't think of the the words as being really sacred. They need to be they need to be really rigorous and and every single bit needs to earn its place. Mm. Absolutely. I'm thinking. Uh, no, I, th- I think. Is that all right, Scott? I think that's more than all right. <laughs> I, um, I think this is going to sound really, wild, but I think it's because we're still going into a rehearsal room in a search for truth. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Rather yeah. than to put on a play. So we're still trying to find the best way of mm-hmm. articulating what it is at the heart of this production. And that will manifest as words, that will manifest as movement, as stillness, mm-hmm. as music, as, as absolute silence. Who knows? But at least we're all on that same journey yeah and that's all part of the conversation so i know my initial response to you know you're in rehearsals in three weeks was um you know yeah. my real response is bring it on yeah yeah i'm really yeah. excited yeah. I'm, we're really ready because we've also got those performers too to meet you know and we're going to find those characters growing and presenting themselves and surprising us and surprising the performers too and that's what we're going to learn so much about I'm so, I'm so excited uh, and I'm so excited at seeing those performers together and interacting or be, uh, I'm just we've got such an amazing cast for it I'm just like made up I think one thing that we're quite interested in the podcast and we, we asked Pete Hollands our producer this in the last episode was uh, when did you become a writer when did you give yourself the title of writer right well this is really interesting because it wasn't for years but I wrote my first play at seven mm-hmm. uh, it's called Alice in Wonderland again and uh, I and I gender swapped everything so I was Mrs Mad Hatter and we had all that thing and, I, and we put it on at the school and I didn't realize then that, that is quite an unusual thing for a seven eight year old to do is to write a play and put it on in front of 150 people um, and then I wrote plays at school um, uh, my dad wasn't very keen for me to train in theater or drama because he didn't think it was a proper job so I didn't go and do degrees in any of that even though I wanted to and again I wrote I wrote at university I wrote plays 
Um, and then I went into, um, but I didn't think I was a writer. Mm. I didn't think I was a writer, and I really, this might sound really stupid, but I thought writers were people who wore glasses, and I didn't wear glasses at the time, and they were really clever, and they were a bit unintelligible, I think. So intelligent that you, a normal person can't talk to them. And I just kind of didn't know anybody who had, who had done that, so I just didn't, and also I was in, I was in a place that was a bit hierarchical, and it was like there were other writers that, that I'd met and they kind of pissed a bit all over their area. Yeah, you can't do that. I do the stuff with the women. You know, well, I do that stuff. I'd say there was a bit of that going on. And then, and then I was a community theatre practitioner. So I did a lot of producing work with English Touring Theatre. I worked at Contact Theatre in Manchester for years. And being a writer just felt like a real like luxury for it to be about what I think and what I want to do. Because... It, it just did, because I really could see... I mean, I was writing youth theatre shows, so I was devising and writing large-scale youth theatre shows with, like, 40 young people, but I didn't count that as writing because I was devising it. And then I met my husband, and every holiday that I had, um, Contact Theatre would give a space and we'd work with actors and we would start to write stuff, but actually I didn't quite know how story worked or anything. And then I was doing a couple of other little things but still doing my job still thinking I can't probably be a writer and, and apologizing constantly for every single idea that I had and then the when I was 39 I'd been developing something with two other writers for tv and um my boss who was at a theatre company then said well if they want to do it you're going to have to give them three months notice and I thought oh god if the tv wants it to happen I'm going to start it straight away so I gave him my notice at work and I just thought, I've got to make a go of this. And so I was 38 when I gave my notice in, 39 by the time I left, four months later. I went on a writing road trip um, a couple of months after that because my kids were very young. And I went away to Liverpool and Manchester for nine days to come up with stuff. And I didn't want to have to deal with washing and shopping and cleaning and getting the kids to bed or anything like that. Um, so I did that and whilst I was away I came up with the idea of a feature film because I'd, I had written a lot, I'd co-written a lot with my husband and a lot with youth theatre so I hadn't got anything that was just me um, and then I wrote that film in about three and a half weeks, showed it to a few people, rewrote it and literally two months later I got onto the BBC Writers Academy which I could never have done before that mm. because I didn't have a script that was in my name and so I did that in September 2009, and I think I've done something like 35 to 40 scripts since then. Wow. So pretty much non-stop writing ever since that moment. But it was, I'd read this thing that you should always have at least two or three career changes. And I was nearly 40, and I just thought, if I don't do this, I'm going to always regret it. And um, and I tried be a few years beforehand to go, I'm going to try and be right. And I just couldn't do it. I, I, I just had brain freeze. I think I was so terrified. I just, I couldn't come up with any ideas. Um, but by this point, I was really, really ready. And I knew I had to do it then or not. And it's, but, you know, God, I was so terrified when I went and did that. You know, I just, it was, it was just really scary because this course I did, it was 13 weeks long at the BBC, and in that 13 weeks, we did three drafts of three doctor episode, doctor's episodes, which are on BBC One, they're half an hour each, so three drafts of that, three drafts of a, an adapted fairy tale, and about four treatments, plus about 30 hours of teaching. I mean, it was 
very full on and then straight on to the shows because it was only kind of that year that I felt I could call myself a writer. Mm. It's like the kind of thing that before I would probably like whisper, I, I want to be a writer. I'd always say I want Once. to be a writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know there's a whole thing about, because I think anybody can write, not everybody can make a living off it, you know. But it's like, but yeah, it took a really long time to go, that's what I want to do, because it felt so selfish. Mm. It felt such a selfish thing to have a job because especially when you do participatory theatre, you know what you're getting out of it. You can see the effect you're having on people and there's something so egomaniacal about being a writer and thinking that people are going to be interested in what you've got to say about things. So at Frantic, we do a lot of outreach work and we're always talking to people who want to be performers, people who want to be directors, but also people who want to be writers and mm -hmm. I'm not best placed to really uh, guide people on, on any of those routes actually but we always talk to about people about trying to find what it is that really really inspires them and to be brave and to keep going but is there any particular advice you could offer to anyone who <coughs> wants to get um, up smoking <laughs> yeah I that's a really good one um so what I would yeah do you know what I would say that uh don't be like me uh to wait to be given permission to be a writer be the person who gives yourself permission to write yeah um uh there's a lot of really brilliant resources out there there is the BBC writers room which is a fantastic load of interviews and scripts read scripts that's a big thing. Yeah. Watch if you want to write plays. Watch plays if you and read plays if you want to write TV. Watch TV, read TV scripts, um, and then don't do this thing of thinking I've got to write something and it's all got to be brilliant and it's all got to be there, right there. And if I can't work it out, then it's not there. My my father-in-law is a bricklayer, or he was a bricklayer before he retired, and he used to be. Um, at our house doing building work when I was doing a lot of writing and he'd see me flip out as I did when I first did the academy and started writing EastEnders and he said to me, look Sally, he said, when I build a house I think about the first thing I've got to do, which is the foundations. He said, if I thought about every single job that I had to do in order to build that house, I would never start building it. And I thought that was just so truthful of writing. So, so, <clears throat> so to start with, I would say, when you have an idea, don't give yourself pressure to be writing the whole script. Write down a couple of little paragraphs. Maybe start writing a few bits as character, you know, with characters. So you start getting into their voice. And then and then write something that's maybe three pages long that has the story in it. And test that out on friends, see how that works, and then make it a bit bigger. So we call that a pitch document, is a really short story. Uh, an outline is one or a treatment is one that is slightly longer. Uh, so, so I think in the middle of August, I sent in um, uh, the first half of the play was a script and the second half was a treatment. So you could see where it was going. So do that. And then only then after that, because it's much easier to get something fixed when it's in 10 pages than it's 100 pages. Only then start writing. But just think of it brick by brick. And don't think of it as a whole thing. And also listen to your instinct. Have a notebook. If there's stuff that you don't like or that you're going, what about this? Keep making a little note of it. Um, and get to the end. 
because you can't make anything better unless you've got to the end. Quite often it's only by the time I've got to the end that I know what it is that I want to write, so then I can go back to the beginning. And like I said, I call it a riot draft, I don't show it to anybody. So just take that pressure off yourself that it's got to be perfect, because it's not going to be perfect. It will probably be because everything we write in our first draft is a bit then hopefully there will be a little few good things. And I've got a really top tip that I've learned recently. Which is when you're doing, and I've done this on a lot of projects, so if you're working on a project and then you're kind of, you know, a script and you've got really stuck in it, um, you've maybe got to the end or you don't quite know what it is you've got to do or you might be on a treatment, is I open up a new document and I give it the title, the reason this is because... And then I start, and very importantly, don't say this out loud because you, your brain needs silence to make the connections between the left and the right-hand side of the brain as a writer. And then anyway, I say, why this is And then I start writing why this is And usually within two paragraphs, your subconscious, which is now coming into the front because you're not using your verbal communication, has started to solve what the problems are, or at least articulate where the problems are. Um, and I find that a really useful way to analyse stuff is the this is because and just drawing <laughs> it in. But I'm such a big believer in the subconscious as a way to solve things. And my last little tip is don't think that the only way you write is sitting in front of a computer. It took me years and years of being a professional writer to realise that some of my best thinking was actually in front of Bake Off or The Apprentice or on a walk because it's your subconscious that you want to solve your problems for you. And they, your subconscious cannot do stuff by looking directly at it. So you have to trick it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you, Sally. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Great okay. rehearsals in three weeks. Oh! <laughs> so if you want to get in contact with us, if anything Sally has said, anything Scott or I have spoken about, you want to speak to us, you want more advice, then you can get in contact with us at podcast at franticassembly.co.uk or through all of our social media channels. Just use the hashtag franticpodcast. Thank you. And this is where you can help us raise £25,000. So this is our 25th birthday and we are asking for your help to support the work we do by making a donation to our 25 at 25 fundraising appeal. Since 1994, Frantic Assembly has been making theatre accessible, breaking down barriers to engagement and participation and providing opportunities for young people to discover and develop careers in the arts. Our 25 at 25 appeal is incredibly simple. We want to raise £25,000. This will help us continue making thrilling theatre and create vital opportunities to develop young talent. You can do this by making a one-off donation or by setting up a regular monthly direct debit. We also invite you to be part of the Frantic journey by becoming a Frantic champion. For an annual fee of £10, champions will receive regular news updates and advance notice of shows and events. More than that though, you'll be supporting our work. You'll be a champion of the company and part of the worldwide Frantic family. If you are a UK taxpayer, we may be able to claim gift aid on your donation, which means for every pound you donate, we can claim an additional 25 pence. Please check the gift aid box when making a donation. Thank you all.